0: Hello, and welcome to On Your Radar. I'm your host, Judy Tatera. Whether you're a privacy, security, compliance, or risk professional, we can all relate to the challenges of trying to keep on top of the rapidly evolving operational, regulatory, and technology changes. We can easily become overwhelmed if we're not focused on the right things. In this show, I've invited privacy professionals to understand what keeps them up at night, what excites them about privacy sector, and what's on their radar. Today, I'm speaking with Paige Bochelle. Paige has been practicing law for almost 35 years, much of that in the privacy space. She worked in private practice for many years and has served as an in-house privacy counsel for USAA, Meta, and now Chevron. Her practice has three pillars, compliance, product development and transactions. She's a privacy law specialist, IAPP certified in US-EU privacy management and also a fellow of information privacy. Paige, I am so thrilled to have you here today. Uh, For full transparency, Paige and I worked together at USAA for many years. the one thing i love about page and i've always loved is when we start talking about privacy situations different things going on it we always get a we always get deeper right i mean it's not just you know this is what it, what it is we always go into that additional layers underneath of what what is really going on what does this mean to society what you know really bringing in that that additional flavor into um, any discussion so when I was thinking about this podcast and we were thinking about, we've talked about U.S. laws, um, you know, quite a bit. And I was thinking about what do we need to know about international laws? And I know now at Chevron, you are a global privacy expert um, and a counsel for Chevron. So I thought, well, let's bring Paige in and just talk about, um, you know, what's going on. But before we get into that, welcome and thank you for for being here, Paige.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's really thrilling doing this with you and um, getting to have our conversation this way.
0: Yes, I am uh, again just just thrilled thrilled to have you here. So so let's let's just jump right in. We're talking about international laws. Okay. So so Paige, we 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 spend a lot of time, like I said, you know, U.S. It has been, the laws have just been crazy the last few years. There's so many new states coming out with laws. We have different, fe- I mean, the federal's even, even more crazy what's going on, but we can't lose track of what's going on internationally. And I was wondering if you can give us just a flavor of what you're seeing outside of the US on privacy laws, maybe a little bit looking back and what's going on now and into the future um, as far as what we're seeing for privacy in the in the world.
1: Yes, yes. And I think just to sort of bring it back to the states, since that's what you've been discussing with your your viewers Mm -hmm. so far, I think we in the states are, for the first time, really experiencing what a lot of our international um, colleagues have been feeling, which is different laws applicable to different sectors, layers of general privacy regulation, variations among geographic regions, um, I, I practice also in the U.S. and we do have a little bit of whiplash with these state laws, and I, I think that that gives us an increased sensitivity to what has been going on around the world. And you and I talked about have talked about this before, but but GDPR was really sort of revolutionary in that way because in 2017 2018 here we still looked at privacy a little bit more like a property right, like who owned the data. So this influx from the European Union of this concept of privacy rights was really was really tremendous, um, really the shot heard around the world. And so what we've seen since then is the development of GDPR-like laws internationally. And what is really exciting as an international privacy pro is to see uh, not just the similarities—you know, the same the same underlying concepts of the Fair Information Privacy Principles, of of notice or consent, of transparency, of proportionality, use minimization. But also it's interesting to see how different regions and within different regions, different countries um, apply those requirements or principles in a slightly different way due to their own culture and the posture of their government. And I think we're seeing that with state laws here. Uh, You know, California is not quite, Connecticut is not quite Texas, and so that's something that the international practitioners have been struggling with a little bit longer. So, for example, um, you know, in LATAM, we see strong privacy laws in Argentina and Brazil, but we also see a, a, an effort by the region to be business friendly. Um, whereas we might see in APAC um, many variations on the GDPR themes. Most recently, with Vietnam and with China, where they have added um, reporting requirements, filing requirements with the government. So you might file your um, SECs in China, or your processing agreement, um, your interaffiliate agreements. It, it's that is sort of a new concept. Is is. This, this concept of making sure that you're internally compliant, but then have to justify it before regulatory authority, before there's even been any enforcement or administration. Um, and in some cases without a lot of guidance. So that makes it, makes it fun and kind of challenging and an opportunity for us to really try to understand more what the instrumental end is behind the privacy legislation, um, is the concern more around security, national security, or is it more around fundamental individual rights, and how we see those tweaked from country to country, country to country? And you know, we're seeing in GDPR the enforcement actions and the litigations are are, are getting. Litigation actions are getting fairly advanced. And what do we? How do we really need to ensure adequacy or sufficiency in uh, cross-border and onward border transfers? Um, in some of the APEC nations, we're seeing a requirement of consumer consent. So you have to be forward-thinking when you give your notice or obtain your initial consent from the consumer because it's not just a notice about collection or a consent to collection, it may be a consent to exportation. And so these variations um, on a theme, um, some more more trending towards data localization, if you will, rather than the initial concept of cross-border transfers was to facilitate digital and electronic commerce. Um, and we've seen hiccups with that in the EU. We've seen pretty strong requirements out of the UK. Israel um, has extremely protective and restrictive exportation requirements. We're now seeing that in, in Vietnam, in China. We've got new laws coming out in Indonesia, India, Sri Lanka, amendments in South Korea. It's, it's a really exciting time to practice everywhere.
0: Wow, that sounds like fun and very overwhelming.
1: It is, it's, so a how lot do you... of, it's a lot of fun, but it's challenging.
0: Right, so how do, how do you, what, do you have any tips on how you're keeping track of this? I love um, what you talked about, that's not only what's written in the law, but what's, what's behind it, right? And understanding that. Um, so how do, you, how, how do you keep track of everything that's, that's moving and, as, for your organization?
1: You know, it, it can be difficult and, and we have, uh, you know, we have mechanisms for that. I, I'm always reading mm-hmm. and thinking about privacy. Um, I rely a lot on different websites, different um, professional industry industry groups, um, outside counsel, certainly. I mean, I think the law firms in this country have done a terrific job of of trying to keep everyone, not just their clients, up to date on uh, developments, but they tend to be the, the initial The initial guidance tends to be very general and high level. And when you work, you know this, when you work in the privacy sphere, it's the, the devils in the details. It's when you get down to the mm-hmm. nitty gritty and you have to interpret uh, the application to specific types of personal data and specific types of data practices and data flows, where it becomes more challenging. And um, I think that that that's another reason, for example, why I love being in-house counsel, because you really, really get to know your business. You understand the data practices. You understand the, um, the mindfulness, the intention behind it. Um, and I've said this to you. I've said this before. A lot of clients for whom I've worked both outside and internally, um, potential misunderstandings or potentialities for gaps in privacy, I think are really more around education and culture. And and you did a terrific job uh, at USAA of, of really making some complicated privacy requirements accessible to everybody. Because it's like, we have to get in privacy, like where we've gotten with phishing. It has, it's down to every employee, it's, it's down to decisions that you're making daily. And I'm not giving short shrift to access controls and privacy enhancing technologies. You know, I'm, I'm all about the boots and suspenders. But to really make these complicated and sometimes varied requirements accessible to the people on the ground, the people who are interacting with consumers, the people who have access, you know, like at USAA, our member, our member service representatives, um, you know, and and I, I think one thing that USAA did a terrific job of, and that you did a great job, was building on the service to members culture, and privacy really is a customer service. It's a service to your members. How do you help them process? financial transactions efficiently, quickly. You know, we all want to use Zelle and and Venmo. We want, um, you know, my daughter used to call me from college or text me from college and say, I need $50. And then before I'd even typed it in, she'd text me and say, it's not in my account yet. You know, everything's so fast and we want to make these, these payment technologies and we want to allow members to have access to their money, to their transactions, to their information, and everything's going at warp speed. And yet you wanna be protective of that information. You want the member to feel protected. And so um, I think when you can take very complicated and varied privacy requirements and distill them down to the FIPS or some other common understanding um, within a culture, uh, sort of the mission critical highlights, then the privacy office, the privacy operational folks and the privacy strategy people can do their things. You know, they can mm-hmm. plan for the specific variations. Um, but I think I think the culture of privacy is really critical to an international practice.
0: Right, yeah. So I think a few of the things that I'm hearing you say, number one is is understanding your business and understanding the culture um, and understanding the data and where it is and what you're doing with it. But the other huge piece I think, you know, what I'm really hearing and I think it's important is that educational key. Simplify, simplifying your your privacy message and communicating that and having that not just be, it's not a one person job, it's, it's everyone's job to understand and be able to um, right. really understand what they need to do for the organization. So I think those are really outstanding tips. And I lo- also love, you know, um, the looking at the U.S. and the complexities that we're dealing with here and seeing that that's similar to what we're seeing international, um, keeping an eye on what we can do um, and the different flavor of, of the intent of, of the information. So, um, you know, i time, I I'm hard to believe this time has gone really fast. Um, we just, you know, I think these are some really, really good tips and nuggets <laughs> for us to... Um, to really be um, looking at, but you know, let me, let me ask you a, a specific question. I know you've been, um, you know, practicing law for years. You've been in privacy for years. What, you know, did you, at, you know, back when we were younger, privacy wasn't even a field. Um, it wasn't an area of expertise. What what did you, where did you think you were going to go? What kind of field did you, were you looking at and, and what brought you into privacy? But I'm uh, curious.
1: I started out in, uh, as a, as a young, young lawyer with a firm as a financial services regulatory lawyer. And I loved that. So doing a lot of consumer, uh, you know, truth in savings, truth in lending, drafting the Schumer box, the Fed box. And, and what I really loved about that practice, and that was a, a national practice, um, but, but just a U.S. practice. What I really loved about that was the sense that there was an answer, And I really liked that if you worked hard enough, you could find the answer. And so I I got from that sort of practice to this sort of practice, which is entirely different. It's it's a science, but it's also an art. Um, What I love about what I do now is there's a lot of judgment calls. You know, there are a lot of new laws in APAC. There's no guidance, there's no enforcement actions. I don't want to say no guns, but we haven't seen the maturity that we've seen in the GDPR. So, a lot of it, there are a lot of unknowns, is using, bringing to bear that judgment and understanding there might not be a right question. So, I, I'm in a, an entirely different practice than I started. But what I loved about the federal regulatory service practices was the concept that you could, that you could. Communicate this information to the to the consumer in an apples to apples way, which we found very hard in privacy. But I sort of started making the transition. There were two two primary impetus for that. One was the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, and so mm-hmm. that was my first effort at a, at an entirely privacy practice. Because before that, it was really just um, common law. Right, it, 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 there mm-hmm. might be a lawsuit against a bank in tort. Or breach of contract so it was very general but the other thing i was able to do in my practice um and, and one thing i loved about outside counsel practice is if your client really likes you and likes what you're doing for them and likes the way you're thinking about their business in a more holistic manner they'll give you more work so i started out drafting the fed box but then they they would ask me behind that they would say okay how do we do that online? How do we do that on a mobile phone? And before that, um, h- how do we contract with the vendor for that? So I really, for a long time, I had a practice that intersected financial services and privacy, but was, was very cradle to grave. So starting from, and now even more so, because you start with pro- uh, product counseling, right? And privacy by design. And then it is so much easier. I know you know this, Judy. It's so much easier That's to build good. privacy in. Early on. It's very hard to retrofit for privacy. So starting off at the inception of an idea, and then looking, looking, and working with different vendors, negotiating the vendor contract, planning the vendor management, um, dealing with implementation. I used to do a lot of a lot of implementation, bank acquisition, conversion. And, and, and then working on the consumer facing disclosures, then dealing with data breach or other client service issues, just really, it, the, it was a unique opportunity, I think, in a, especially in a large full service law firm to go to work through the entire life cycle of a product or service. Um, and, and so that really helped in the way that I learned privacy And applied privacy in my practice and how I started seeing connections between privacy and every single part of the life cycle of um, a consumer. And now not even consumer, B2B, you know, is covered now in California, is covered, B2B personal information is covered a lot abroad. So thinking about small business customers and and those sorts of interactions, it's, it's really been a lovely way to have had my practice evolved. Um, and and a lot of fun, a lot of fun to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. One quick, quick last question. What's on your radar for the future of privacy? What do you, what are you seeing out there? What is it going to look like in five to 10 years?
1: Yeah. It is so hard to tell, isn't it? Because I, I, Okay. okay. So since I started in privacy to now, I have had three children and they're all adults and I have a grandchild. And so my children grew up with the Internet and and phones and iPads. And, and it was early days. So it was that onslaught of all this great technology, a little bit like what we're seeing with AI. All this technology. And it was going to be such a learning opportunity for small children. And then you just see before you know it, your children's privacy, it feels like it's gone. And you just think the genie's out of the bottle. But my my. My children are now, you know, they would never listen to me. I would say you need these privacy settings for Facebook, these for Instagram. But now my my grandchild is not on the Internet. Her face is not on the Internet. They'll take pictures of her behind, but they've had very thoughtful discussions. And so between that, between these savvy young adults, understanding specifically how this online engagement may impact their privacy or that of their children. And then also seeing this prolif- these prolifer- proliferation of state laws that are really making people in this country focus on what their individual privacy rights look like. It's, it's almost like we've gone through an incredible abbreviated cycle. And so it's hard to guess, but I hope that we are gonna continue to have the same conversation about what privacy means I think we're doing that with AI already. How can privacy inform AI? Um, I've already seen that in my practice with biometrics, wearables, uh, geolocation. Um, so it, it's really, I see more of that. I see more conversations about what fundamental human privacy rights look like in a time of great change, not only in data science, but in technology, how we collect data, how we can use it, what kind we can collect. And I just see that accelerating. And I, it's been really delightful for me to see that these that these young adults who are worried about as children and teens, and we've all seen you know, the data on, on negative impacts on teens, but seeing these um, young adults have really a sophisticated and thorough grasp of privacy rights that, that we're just beginning to get ourselves and we're privacy professionals. It's, it's really interesting. And so I think, yeah. I think we'll see more of that and, and hopefully we'll see, um, I would love for there to be um, more standardization even across privacy laws um, regionally yeah. and domestically certainly.
0: That would be wonderful. Let's look to, for a for future that looks that's like that. Our, that's our so holiday Paige, wish. <laughs> that's our holiday wish, yes, in, indeed. So, unfortunately, we have to have to wrap up here. But, um, Paige, thank you so much uh, for your time today. And thank you, everyone, for listening to On Your Radar. Um, this podcast has been made possible by the privacy and compliance innovators at Radar First. Radar First governance risk and compliance software solutions are trusted by organizations to reduce risk and simplify obligation decisioning with privacy, cyber, and compliance laws. Learn more at RadarFirst.com. Uh, contact information for uh, Paige and, and anything else that we'd like to add in as additional information will be available in the show notes. If you liked what you heard today, please continue to follow us for future episodes. Paige, Again, it's always so wonderful to see you and to talk with you, and um, I greatly appreciate your time today. Um, Thank you so much.
1: I'm happy to do it, and I love seeing you. I hope you have a great end of the year and a good start to 2024.
0: Thank you.